thank you guys. Uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here, although Tom's really kind of talked that up a lot. And, uh, and I think it's going to be really tough to follow the, the nursery graduations, so bear with me on that. That was amazing. Um, yeah, uh, once again, my name is Derek Rishmaui. I'm saying it again because I wrote it here. Uh, and I work with students at UC Irvine, and it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning to share out of God's word and to, to kick off this series. I didn't realize I was kicking off this series. I thought I was maybe second or third in. Um, but but what, what we just heard and what we're recognizing is that um, the series that you're going to be entering into is one talking about good news and Christianity as good news uh, and how really we, we all need good news. And there's all sorts of kinds of good news that we need because there's a lot of bad news out there. Uh, we, I feel like we've been dwelling in a world of bad news for years upon years or at least the last month that has felt like a year. Um, but Christianity offers the best news ever. It offers a gospel that uh, beggars the imagination, that has, has depths to it that just keep going and going. But the thing that you're gonna, I think you're going to see over the next few weeks, and you probably see regularly, is that the good news of Christianity is not a straightforward good news. It's a paradoxical good news. Right? It's a good news that initially sometimes sounds like bad news. For instance, a lot of people come to Christianity, they come to a religion, they come to a faith, assuming that they're going to find here a solution as to how they can fix themselves. Like here is, I'm, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to go to Christianity, I'm going to go to the Bible, and I'm going to figure out a way to get myself back together. And what you do is you open up the Bible and you read, oh, wow, you're actually up a creek without a paddle on that, on that thing because you can't put yourself back together. The Bible says you can't fix yourself. The Bible says you're in a very deep hole that only God can draw you out of, and that's amazing news because he's willing to do so. And so the good news of Christianity is a paradoxical good news. Today, this morning, we're going to go into what I, what I think is another one of those paradoxes. Right? It's, it's not exactly the one I just articulated, but it, but it, but it founds it. Today we're going to talk about the great, amazing, awesome news that God has absolutely no need for you. God absolutely doesn't need you. Not, not one little bit. And that is glorious. But in order to understand why that is good news and why that should fill you with hope and with joy and with resilience and energy... Uh, we're going to need that God to help me and help us understand his words as we read them together. So I want you guys to bow your heads and pray with me before we read the word. Holy Father, you are good and you're righteous and you are the fullness of life. And I pray right now that in that fullness, out of that fullness, you would speak. You have spoken once. You have spoken in the inspiration of your word. I pray right now that you would illuminate it. Illuminate our hearts, our minds, our souls. I pray right now that you would also just clarify. And um, we come in here full of so many burdens, so many cares, so many distractions. And I pray right now that you would focus us in during this time by your spirit and re-preach re your word to us by your spirit. Help us to accept it to understand it, to be enthralled by it, and ultimately to be set free by it. 
God, we ask you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John, the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 25. If you don't, I think it's going to go up on the screen in a second. Um, we're going we're gonna to read a few verses here together out of John, chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. And because I'm a Presbyterian, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you'll all say back, thanks be to God. I don't know if you guys do that here, but I'm, I'm wearing a longer sleeve shirt than most of you, so I wasn't sure about that. But we're going we're gonna to go ahead and read that. And, 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 then, and then we're going to thank God for his word. So go ahead and read along with me. John chapter 5, verses 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks be to God. You guys will get it. Um, so here's the question that I wanted us to think about for a second as we get into this is, it's just the basic question of what gives you life, right? What do you look to in order to sustain you? Because you, we're always looking for energy in life, right? I, even when we just wake up in the morning, the, the, the initial thing we need, is, it's a hunt for energy, it's a hunt for life. If you're like many uh, college, post-college students, this usually, uh, and, and basically our entire culture, it, it's a hunt for like coffee or something. Right, just I'm going to that for energy. Or if you're getting really fancy, uh, you may be doing one of those mushroom coffees. I just tried one of those. There's like six or seven mushrooms. It's supposed to be less jittery. I don't know if that's true or not. But but you're 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 on the hunt for biological life, biological energy, just to get going and do what you need to do, right? And we start out that way. But but it's not just it's not just biological energy. Energy. It's not just biological life. It is. Life in general, spiritual life, emotional life. A lot of us are on hunt for things that recharge us, restore us. Some of us recharge and restore by being around a lot of people. We, we go into a coffee shop, we, we hang out with our friends, we go into a public place and it just energizes us and amps us out. And other of us, to get energized, we flee those places into a dark corner and we hide and we recharge by being away from people. Or, or we, where we find life-giving habits, life-giving uh, hobbies, life-giving uh, I don't know, shows or whatever it is, we're, we're usually hunting for something to sustain us. We all have different ways of going about that. And I bring that up this morning because I want to talk about the root of life, the deepest source of life, not just small temporary things that give us energy, but, but the core that sustains the whole of our existence. And in order to do that, in order to find that, I think we need to understand what's going on in Jesus' words here. Right? The context here of Jesus' words is that once again, Jesus is in a fight with some of the religious authorities of the day. He healed a man on the Sabbath, on, 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 on the day that in, the, in the, the, the fourth commandment, it is illegal to do work. And according to the dominant religious tradition of the day, interpretation of the day, Jesus had just broken the law. It's a violation of the law. Now, from, from there... The religious authorities who were kind of out for Jesus at the moment, 
challenge Jesus. They challenge Jesus on all sorts of things, but here they challenge his authority to do the works that he was doing, especially on the Sabbath. So Jesus and the boys kind of get into an argument here about the source of his authority. And they go back and forth, and this is the context for the passage that we read. And it's at this point that Jesus drops this very curious phrase that I want to focus on almost the entire time. Is that he says that God has life in himself and that he has also given it to the Son to have life in himself. And that is his authority to heal on the Sabbath and even raise and give life to the dead. So what does it mean for Jesus to have life in himself? This is one of the foundational texts that teaches a biblical doctrine, a doctrine that Christians have believed for centuries, millennia, which is that God is independent. God is what they say in Latin is ase. He is from himself. He is self-sufficient. And it is in this characteristic of God that we find the answer to our question of the deepest source of our life. And you have to understand, this, this is going to, you might initially be glazing over because I just said something in Latin. But, but you have to understand this aspect of God if you're going to get a grasp on what it means that God founds and sustains your existence. In order to get a grasp on this biblically, we need to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I think that's going to go up on the screen to see the beginning of the background for this teaching. Because this is really foundational for the whole. In Genesis 1, we read, in the beginning, there we go. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, it goes on like this for uh, six more days, if you've read the chapter before, and God speaking, and then something happens according to his word, and then him saying and seeing that it is good. Now, there's a lot we can go into, but I want to make two observations specifically about this text that are important for us. The first is the background of this text. This text was written in the ancient Near East against the background of polytheism and, 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 and kind of pantheistic creation myths. And the main creation myth, the dominant creation myth that you may have read about in, your, in school uh, was the one that was set against, has this, has this uh, essentially this battle of the gods, right? This battle of the gods where there's, there's a dominant god and there's another dominant god, and, and the new dominant god comes out and he kills the first one, the, the, the sea monster, Tiamat, and he rips her body open and then uses... Uh, her in order to create the earth and out of the blood of this God, he also creates humans who are then there to serve the gods, the pantheon of gods who are sort of like uh, his backup singers, their support gods. Essentially, think about like the Avengers and, and, and you know, you've got like Thanos, some sort of Thanos level God, pretty powerful, and then a bunch of superhero demigods around them, and that's about as powerful as it gets. And the earth is born through the conflict of the gods, right? And against this background, Scripture says this is nonsense, right? Moses writes here that, in fact, this is not how it happened. In fact, there was actually just one God, an all-powerful creator and ruler who sits on his throne and says, let there be, and it happens. There is no fight. There is no struggle. There is no effort. God just speaks, and it happens, Ultimate 
cosmic authority is his. Now, just to be clear on the implication of this, the second point of this text is that God makes the stuff. Right? There is a dividing line in reality, and then there, in, that, in, the, in reality, there's, there's two basic units. There's God, big old line, and then all the stuff that God made. And God is not on this side. God is fully over here, and God is fully responsible for everything over here. Everything over here did not used to exist, and only exists because God wills that it exists. This gets developed a million different ways in Scripture, but Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so we get this declaration that God speaks the universe into existence, unlike modern New Age pantheisms or very old pantheisms that say that God is one with the world and when you look at the world you see God and God's in me and God's in you and, and so on and so forth and that feels great on like a, on a nice summer day. Um, the Bible says, no, no, God made the world. The world's beautiful because it's the work of a God who absolutely transcends the world, who, tra- who, who, who is not contained within it. So if God made the world out of nothing, Before there was a world, God existed, right? If God made the world, before the world was, God existed. And if God existed before the world, then does he depend on the world to exist? No. God absolutely does not depend on anything in the world, anything he has made to exist. He doesn't need it. He's perfectly fine without it. Isaiah 40, 28 says, have you not nerved? Known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Or again, Paul speaking to the pagan philosophers uh, on, in Athens on Mars Hill. He, he, writes th- he says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God exists in an absolutely incomparable way. Striking. If you read Homer's Odyssey, I don't know if any of you have read that since college, but if you read Homer's Odyssey, I went back a few years ago, it's amazing how often the gods speak uh, Zeus and, and Athena, how often they speak about wonderful sacrifices and like how hungry they are and how much they depend on the sacrifices of humans that are offered to these gods. But unlike the pagan gods, God doesn't need us to sustain him. We don't add to his life in that way. Not, not physically, not emotionally, not anything like that. God is not, I'm going to put it this way, God is not codependent on you. Right? Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bobbing puts it this way, and here's a big quote. Um, God is exclusively from himself, not in the self- sense of being self-caused, but by being from eternity to eternity who he is. Being, not becoming. God is absolute being, the fullness of being, and therefore also eternally and absolutely independent in his existence, in his perfections, in all his works, the first and the last, the sole cause and the final goal of all things. In his aseity, in the aseity of God, conceive not only 
as having being from himself, but also as the fullness of being, all other perfections are included. We're not going to go into all that, but it's just a really cool quote. Um, but it's highlighting the fact that in this, in this independence, in this society, God is fully and absolutely himself before anything else came on the scene. And this is ultimately rooted in something that we don't have time to get into too much today, but the fact that God is triune. God is, is not just, there's one God, but this one God is actually three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this one God has existed in perfect relationship, perfect communal uh, love and communion for all of eternity. Mark Jones, another quote coming up here, uh, puts it this way, God's independence is his sufficiency. And from his sufficiency are enough gifts, both natural and supernatural, to satisfy all creatures that come into existence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all satisfy each other. And because they eternally and unchangeably do so in loving communion, they can satisfy others with whom they commune in love. If there were infinite worlds of loving creatures, all desiring happiness in God, he could as easily bless all as he could one. Right? This is exactly right. The perfection of God's life is rooted in the fact that God is a trinity of persons communing for all of eternity with perfect joy, perfect power, perfect peace, perfect love, perfect life. God has everything he needs in himself. And I'm doing this to drive home and, and kind of drive out of our minds this idea that a lot of us get somehow in Sunday school, and obviously not this one, um, but in Sunday school or around or, or kind of the idea that like we, we hear the idea that God created us out of love for loving relationship. And we hear, we translate, uh, well, God created you because he was lonely. He was all alone, and he needed somebody to worship him and say nice things about him. He's feeling a little needy and just needed a little bit of affirmation, and that is not it. God actually doesn't need your worship. Right? All the amens and all the hosannas, God doesn't need them. He is perfectly all right. He is perfectly fine within himself. You need him. I need him. We need to, obs we need to observe beauty and praise it. We need to be lost in wonder before him. He absolutely does not. He is perfect in himself. Which we already kind of pre-gained it, but it gets us into our next point. Which I didn't tell you there were points. There are points. I, I know them, you don't. But, but the, the, the next point is this. The order of dependency is completely the opposite. God is independent, but we are totally dependent. God is not limited or finite. We are. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 104, verse 29, says this. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Uh, there are a lot of other verses that highlight this, but God is the one who sustains us in being. God, we often think about the creation of the world like God kind of took a top and he set it going and he kind of just lets it keep going. That's not what it is. God sustains the universe in existence. It's like he sets the top going on his hand. And he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. That's what Colossians 1 says about Christ. And if he were to take away his hand, the top would fall and actually disappear. If God drew his breath back, we would fall away into nothingness. We are radically, metaphysically dependent on God. The oxygen in your lungs, the molecules you are made out of, are sustained in being by God in this moment. All of which tells us something about the nature of sin. 
All too often, we think of sin as the breaking of arbitrary rules with, with, with then punishment comes about in some arbitrary way. So you break this random rule, and then God sets up this random punishment that smites you. And what this is, is Scripture says, actually, instead, sin, sin does have rules. Sin has to do with rules, and sin has to do with punishment. But sin is actually about uh, rejecting a proper relationship with a God who sustains you in being. Right? This, this begins to explain why idolatry is foolish. Right? Idolatry, worshiping idols, is the act of taking something created and finite and worshiping it as if it were infinite and the source of your life. And we do this with all sorts of things, right? Uh, we've, we've done this with well, most human religions are taking some created feature of reality, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, some, some big blow up of ourselves, and projecting them onto the screen of heaven and saying, this is the source of my life, and, and, and we worship it. We worship these mountains. We worship these stars. We show these things that are bigger than us. Right, that do cause awe because they reflect God. But instead of recognizing that we, they reflect God, we say this is God. We say this, this gives me being. And even if you're like a secular person in the West who's, who's you know, kind of given up traditional religions or whatever, we do this all the time anyways. We look at our human relationships and we say, this per- if I could just have this person, this woman, this man, I would be complete. If I could just get a date. Uh, I would be okay. Or, or if I could, we don't, not in relationships, we, we, do this with, we, do this with, uh, we do this with sex, right? If I could just get some, I would be okay. I would be all right. If I could just get money, right? If there was enough money in my, in my bank account, my 401k, if I reach a certain financial accomplishment level, then I could provide for all things and that would sustain me. If I could just reach the right rung on the ladder, then I could get, uh, I could get enough approval from uh, my, my family and my peers that I would be okay and that would sustain me. And uh, I'll, I'll just say for, 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 for y'all, I, I, work, I work with pretty much exclusively UC Irvine students, a bunch of high achiever types, I'm not saying that that's any of you in the room. Um, but for, I'll just say that for many of them, it's actually very easy for them to look around at the world and begin to imagine that you yourself can give yourself life, right? You're independent. You don't need anybody because you've managed to reach and achieve and maintain a GPA. And if you maintain this course, then you'll be able to get into the right firm after you get the right internship and the right job or whatever, get the right amount of money and get into the right house and the right neighborhood. And, and, and there's a sense in which y- you can actually give yourself life. You can sustain yourself. And this is foolish. Paul challenges the Corinthians who are being tempted to imagine that, that their, their spiritual accomplishments were something that they could take credit for. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Nothing you have ultimately didn't come from God's hand in some way. Right? If God had caused you to be born in, in a village somewhere in like, I don't know, the 10th century, you would have been a subsistence farmer just like everybody else and probably died at 30 uh, if a disease didn't kill you right before then. None of the things that you're planning on accomplishing or have accomplished, you would have done. Right? Your position, your power, your privilege, any of the things that you've done, it comes from God's hand. Right? So this is not only wrong, it's also stupid. It's also foolish. Right? It leads to breakdown. And I think w- we start to recognize this because idols fail. Right? 
All of us have had idols fail. All of us have had heroes crash and burn. I mean, just turn on the internet. Everybody in the last five years has had, two years, has had somebody that they deeply admire crash and burn. In business, in politics, in the church. People we looked up to, people we counted on, people we depended on, who've utterly failed us. Right? Eventually money runs out. And we realize it doesn't satisfy. And we live in Orange County at the edge of L.A. in Orange County. You either have or have met enough rich people to know that having everything. I live in Newport Beach because I have to be close to UC Irvine. I'm around rich people constantly, constantly disappointed and aggravated and empty. Very wealthy, beautiful people who have everything. And yet feel like they have nothing. Or maybe it's that relationship that we were looking to to give us life and we realize that once we, when we kept on looking to it to give us life, we kept on demanding more and more from it, we actually killed it and drained it. Or we look to our children to give us life and we crush them. Right? And it, it's never enough. Right? We live, like I said, we live in Orange County, we live in L.A. County, and, and so much of life here is premised on the idea that you can just add thing after thing after thing, gym class, sports uh, team for your kid, tutoring, whatever it is. Uh, like all my students at, at UCI just add club after club after 20 units after, um, I don't know, study session after dance team that actually is for no credit whatsoever. And they all just think that you can just keep going and going because we're, we're fine because we're these self-sustaining little energizer bunnies. And we can't rest because rest is for the weak and rest is for people who don't get the internship and rest is for the people who, who won't build up the life that I've always set my mind on and, and it's always been laid out before me and, and I can know I can pull it off. And what this is is a failure to recognize that you are not the creator, you're a creature and you have limits. And you depend on God. And this, by the way, is part of what we mean when we say that sin leads to death. Right? It's not just about God handing you over to judgment. Although that happens. It's about you running yourself down. It's like never filling up your car tank with gas, but just putting the alcohol in or different kinds of substitutes. And eventually the thing runs down and breaks down. The same thing is true of your life. And many of you are here. Right now, just like that, the fatigue, the emotional distress, the burnout, the heartache, the gnawing sense of fear that while everything's fine right now, I'm not going to be able to keep these plates spinning much longer, and they're going to come crashing down, and everybody's going to see what a failure and what a fraud I am. And it's that fear that keeps you going, burning out, going to substances, going to, going to alcohol, going to drugs, going to porn, going to whatever it is that like gives you enough of a jolt to keep going. Now all this brings us back to the text we began with. Jesus fighting with the leaders because they didn't recognize his ability to heal on the Sabbath. Alright, the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments, and the Sabbath was instituted in order to do at least two things. First, it was there, it was imposed by God in order to teach us that we depend on God. God created the world in six days and then rested, and so he tells us to rest in him because he created the world, not us. That's what Exodus, the logic of Exodus 20. 
And it was also put there in order to just give us rest. You need a day off. Your body needs to rest or it will break down your emotions. And what we start to realize is that the religious teachers were not seeing that Jesus wasn't violating the Sabbath for at least a couple of reasons. One, one he's, he's just God. It's his command. John 1.1. 1, 1. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word who's equal with the Father, and so he does what the Father does. And the, and the Father is the one who sustains people in being and gives them life. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving this person life by healing them. So he's actually fulfilling the true intention of the, demand, of the command, which is to give life, to give rest. Jesus, what you need to see, and this is the deeper point, Jesus is the God who has life in himself, and so he can give life and rest to others. As the one who has life in himself, Jesus is the source of resurrection life, of rest life for those who have been dead and dying in our sins and our idolatry and our foolish attempts to sustain ourselves and our lives apart from God. This is what I hope you are beginning to see here. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the one who can give Sabbath because Jesus is the God who has life in himself. And this is why it is absolutely fantastic news that Jesus is the God who doesn't need you. God is not sustained by you. God is not emotionally dependent upon you. God doesn't need you to do the right thing in order for him to feel okay enough to, to, to bless you. God has life in himself. God has fullness in himself. God is and always will be self-sustaining, triune love. His life is an overflowing fountain of blessing and joy and abundance. And it is the foundation, he is the foundation of him being able to give you what you need most in the time you need it most. Not when you've gotten everything right, not when you've emotionally pleased him, not when you've offered up enough worship, not when you've given enough tithe, not when you've been going to church for, for the requisite amount of time, not when you've, you've done everything that's been required of you uh, morally or culturally or whatever, not when anything that you have done, you think, okay, well, I've gotten everything right, God must be pleased with me now, and so now I can ask him for what I think I need. No. When you are empty, when you are at your lowest, when you are at your worst, when you are at your most sinful, when you are at your most idolatrous, when you are completely on empty and have failed everything and have been living your whole life as if, as if, as if your only purpose is to give God the middle finger, that is when God can bless you because he's never been dependent on you. Isaiah 55, 1, pictures the Lord saying to his people, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he, who and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. <laughs> buy the one who has no money. This is, this, is, this is almost a joke. Come with empty hands. And buy something you could never afford. Buy, buy good wine. Buy milk. The fullness of life is yours. Go to the triune God. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He can sustain you. And this is why this is, why this is all grace. This is why Christianity is a religion of not what you do to earn, not what you do to come near to God, but what God has done to come near to you when you were sick and dying. That is when God, in Jesus, assumed flesh and came and became one of us and lived a life we could not live and to die a life we could, uh, death we needed to die and then rise again and have the authority to pour that life into you by the Holy Spirit. And this is the gospel. God gives life because he has life. Not because you've earned that life. And so I want to just ask you today, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you beat down? Are you lost? Do you need wisdom? Do you need energy? Do you need joy? Do you need peace? Do you need life? Hear then what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Paul says again, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, God gives out of the abundance of his life. He doesn't always give you exactly what you want. He doesn't always give you exactly when you want. But he gives you exactly what you need out of the overflowing abundance of who he is. The storehouses of riches that are hidden in the glory of Jesus Christ. You're supposed to, Im you're supposed to imagine uh, like an endless treasure hoard. <laughs> uh, like a, 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 a mountain full of gold full of diamonds, full of rubies, full of anything. That's what's hidden in Christ. All that you need. All that you desire. All that is truly life can be found in him. And again, if you worry that he won't give it to you, if you worry that you don't deserve it, again, take heart. God does not give to you because you can pay. God does not give because he depends on you. God gives out of his overflowing abundance of life. God has life in himself. And so he can give it to you in his son whom he has granted to have life in himself. As the praise band comes up, please bow your heads and pray with me to this God and receive life from him. Holy Father, you are Righteous and good and holy and full. You have an overflowing and overabundant life. We ask you right now that we would experience that. And that our worship and our praise and our response would be a response provoked by what we have given. But what we have been given from you. It would be provoked by a sense of what we are to receive from you. Overflowing, overabundant, ever full life. And it's in Christ's name we pray.